This is an irreverent podcast. Check out irreverent.fm for shows from all our friends. Hello and welcome back to Exvangelical, a show exploring the world inside and outside the evangelical subculture. I'm your host, Blake Chastain. Today I'm very fortunate to share a conversation with Dr. Keisha McKenzie, a consultant and blogger at McKenzian.com, whom you can also find on Twitter, at McKenzian. She shares her story of growing up in the UK, attending school in Jamaica, as well as her time living in the US, all while engaging her Adventist faith and finding communities that helped her continue to ask the questions that she wanted to ask. It's a great conversation that covers a lot of ground across politics, religion, and sexuality, or what she refers to as the three taboos on her website. There are three ways to support the show. First, you can support the show through Patreon at patreon.com slash exvangelical. Second, if you want any of the books we mentioned, please go ahead and follow the links in the show notes. Those are affiliate links, and we'll get a portion of the proceeds of anything you purchase through those. And finally, you can rate and review the show on iTunes. All ratings and reviews there on iTunes help boost the vis- visibility of the show considerably. You can also follow me on Twitter at brchastain. You can follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at exvangelicalpod. And you can like us on facebook.com slash exvangelicalpod. All right, let's get into it. Hello and welcome back to Exvangelical. I have with me this week uh, Dr. Keisha McKenzie. She is a consultant, a prolific blogger at mckenzian.com, and you can also find her on Twitter at the same name, at mckenzian. Welcome to the show, Keisha. Thanks, Blake. Thank you for joining me. Um, let's talk a little bit about where you, where you grew up and your background. Where are you from originally? Uh, I was born in London, in London, England, um, to Jamaican parents, both of whom moved from Jamaica to the UK in around 1964-65. They were part of the second generation of Caribbean immigrants, who, most of whom were born in the islands as British subjects. Um, because it's a monarchy, you're not really a citizen, you're a subject. And um, they moved from the, the islands to the mother country um, just to start a new professional life. My parents happened to meet in the UK in the church circuit um, and married and raised three kids. And I am the bonus, the last one. <laughs> um, I'm not I'm not really quite clear on this. So when you move from somewhere where you're a subject to the mother country to England, do, does your status change? Do you become a citizen or are you still maintain that subject status? What was that so, like for your? So, so it was it was all pretty awkward um, for that those first few generations, because uh, the empire being what it was at that time, declining, but still um, with political authority over the colonies, what they would call the colonies. So you had a situation where people were raised within the culture of the British Empire, uh, trained in the Queen's English, um, trained to revere English institutions, including the Anglican Church. and. Um, and then they go to the mother country and they are not respected. Um, racism was pretty, pretty severe at that point um, and, and still is, but in a much more subtle fashion. And so a lot of 
my elders, uh, especially the generation above me, they became really disillusioned once they touched ground in England because they had many of them uh, either contributed to British schools or even some of them had served in the British military. And so with a similar situation to U.S. veterans where, well, U.S. black veterans, uh, where they had served abroad for the country, but then returned home and not found welcome. That was pretty much the situation. So my parents' generation faced um, real struggles with finding apartments, uh, earning much less than they were worthy of in whether they were training as nurses or teachers or in the trades, all sorts of job discrimination, street discrimination, uh, and, and yet they were just trying to build a, a better life for themselves and in some cases for their families back home. And how did that play out within your domestic life? So um, by the time I came along, my parents were pretty much settled in uh, about 20-something years later. Um, I arrived on the scene. We lived in a small area in southeast London, um, about half an hour from the church that I grew up in attending. Uh, my dad, by that point, was a social worker. My mother, by that point, was uh, an encyclopedia sales person, as it turns out. So she'd gone through nursing training, um, still did some shifts on the side, but she, she really thrived in the sales environment. And my dad brought home the steady income through social work. And what was that? Uh, what was that church that you went to? What, did it have a denominational affiliation? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. My family is Seventh Day Adventist, and my mother's family, um, her parents converted in the 1930s in in Jamaica. Uh, grandma's original background was Anglican. Uh, grandfather didn't have a denominational affiliation. But um, in the early 1900s, the Seventh-day Adventist Church uh, sent missionaries over to Jamaica and really found a great reception among lower farming class, um, working class people there. So within two generations, it's become one of the fastest growing denominations in the island and uh, completely different situation than it is in the U.S. where a lot of people still don't know about the Adventist church except for the fact that we worship on Saturdays. Um, a lot of members are vegetarian. Um, and uh, there tends to be a lot of confusion between the Adventist church and the LDS church. But mm -hmm. uh, my grandparents uh, were the converts in my family, and most of our family remains within the church community. Does, aside from the those more externally visible things like um, worshiping on Saturdays and the vegetarianism, what are some other like theological hallmarks of the Seventh-day Adventist church that may be similar or differ from other Protestant um, denominations? Right. So I, I'd classify the community as majority evangelical and minority, but vocal minority fundamentalist. So I, that's where I'd situate it within the Protestant matrix. Um, the founders of the church included people who, during the Second Great Awakening in the mid-1830s, 1840s, uh, either left congregations like Baptist, Seventh-day Baptist, Methodist, um, Christian Connection. So there was a real uh, theological 
mix among the original, uh, that first generation of Seventh-day Adventists. Hmm. The dominant um, belief, hence the name Adventist, is a belief in the imminent second coming of Jesus. So it's very much uh, focused on the end of times, and um, in the ideal, it's designed to help people figure out um, how to draw hope from that scenario versus, I mean, the shadow side of it is that you get a lot of focus on prophecies and beasts and, you know, who's who's bringing in the Antichrist these days and uh, should we be hyper vigilant about the Pope and the papacy and U.S. surveillance culture? There's definitely a shadow side to that theological framework, but when it's at least a little bit healthy, um, it can lead people to really have a sense of urgency around making sure that each moment counts, that you live out the best of your religious values as best as you can, and that you share what's good about your tradition with the people around you. That That's the ideal. Yeah, and that, um, I, I do think that sort of shadow side does kind of tend to um, find... Predominate? Prom- yeah, oh, yeah. And, and find <laughs> prominence in the more general evangelical uh, sort of... Mm-hmm. Uh, milieu, cultural milieu, I guess. Uh, it seems like the late great planet, planet Earth and all the different things about trying to find out when things will end. Um, I worked at a Christian bookstore when it was the year 2000. So it was like, oh it was, um, you know, it was in the air and it was always that predominant concern. So it's, it's funny about that. I was in Jamaica during Y2K panic and I didn't feel it. And the Adventist culture that I was in didn't really care about it. And one of the reasons why is that maybe learning from early mistakes where church members got really into setting dates for the second coming. And in fact, um, the great disappointment, which is celebrated October 22, um, is or not celebrated is the wrong word, but um, memorialized each year, <laughs> October 22 as the date when the Millerites, people who were really taken by the evangelical message of William Miller, who was a millenarian, um, he had figured out, based on his literalist reading of some verses in Daniel and um, parsing of Jewish calendars, that Jesus would be coming back to earth on October 22, first 1843 and then 1844. And of course, there were, was much uh, wailing and gnashing of teeth as nothing happened on either date. And there were a subset of his followers um, who uh, tried to say that something did happen, but it wasn't what they expected. Others who said, you know, the whole thing, let's call the whole thing off and go back to our original churches. But out of the group that said something happened and we should acknowledge that he was right about the calculation, but wrong about the meaning, came the Seventh-day Adventist denomination. Hmm. So, um this is a group that has gone through several cycles of really intense prediction around date setting and has learned not to do that. But of course, that never stops people who say, oh, we don't know the day exactly, but we know it's happening because of these signs. And there's always that tendency within the subculture to say, you know, whether it is increased um, visibility of earthquakes or um, the latest war or 
um, LGBT people being visible, um, there's always some sign that can be used as a token that tells them this is the end. So there is that too. That's very interesting, uh, that, that desire to just attach some sort of temporal thing to that, uh, to, to the idea of the second coming. Um, well, yeah, and I think evangelicals, even like Pat Robins, Robertson, do pretty much the same thing. If there's a tornado, then queer people caused it, or um, if, yeah. if there's a, a calamity of any sort, it's because America isn't doing what they think it should be doing. And so there's, there is always that tendency within this branch of Christianity to assign meanings that match their doctrines to things that are happening around. And, you know, the unfortunate thing is that it tends not to encourage responsibility for changing those things. It, it tends more to accommodate a kind of passive response or a controlling response to mm. the things. Mm -hmm. Changing gears a little bit, um, going back to being in London, what was your experience mm -hmm. of, um, of evangelicalism in in the uk what um what was the overall evangelical culture like there and did it differ at all from what you've experienced and because you spent uh you've lived in the in the united states since 2004 according to your correct. site yeah. correct um mm -hmm. so is there anything that kind of sets apart this sort of evangelical experience in in the uk um either for good or for bad and also, are there any sort of commonalities there? So, I mean, I, I left the UK when I was 15, but I'm still pretty much in touch with my friends there. And so my exposure to evangelicalism was really shaped by the congregation, the local church that I was raised in. Um, I was baptized in when I was 12 slash 13 years old um, and participated there really actively until I left for college. And at that time, my congregation was almost exclusively black, um, whether first or second generation immigrant or West African first or second generation immigrant. And so for many, many years, my experience of conservative religion was shaped by the fact that all of the people in it looked like me and my parents and my aunts and uncles or people that we called aunts and uncles because that's just how our culture works. Um, by contrast, the Church of England and Roman Catholicism in the U UK was dominated by white ind indigenous English people and um, also very much shaped by the reserved, the stereotypically reserved English culture around not too much expression, not too much um, spontaneity. Uh, fairly rigid um, uh, worship style, yet they were much more open about discussing doctrinal issues, whereas my congregation was not charismatic by any means, but had a really rich musical tradition, which I appreciate to this day, um, and, and uh, really encouraged people to fully engage with their whole attention, um, really strong on uh, visual, um, con connecting visually with the congregation who's um, participating by listening or speaking um, and uh, connecting that with the speaker or connecting with the choir, um, just, just really a really full body experience. Um, so in, in that sense, in terms of worship style versus uh, 
um, theological styles. Those are some of the differences between the two cultures that I was in, both the immediate Caribbean English culture and the wider white English culture. And where did you go to? Where did you go to college? Um, I, I went to an Adventist college in Mandeville, Manchester, Jamaica. So if you can imagine Jamaica being an oval on its long side, Manchester is a, a parish in the south central quadrant of the island. And um, it's country. It's about two and a half hours away from Kingston or two if you drive a little fast and three hours away from Montego Bay, which is where most of the tourists live. Um, so inland, up in the mountains, moderate climate tends to be where the um, returning residents go. So people who left the island maybe in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, come back to the island when they've retired and spent most of their working years abroad. But they are coming back to that area mostly because the climate is much more tolerable for them. And um, so it's it's an interesting uh, almost a microcosm of the Jamaican diaspora. So people who have had experience living abroad, so have a, a broader sense of life and um, experience than those who, um, for whatever reason, weren't able to leave. But people who've had families abroad, their kids largely are also abroad. And so a lot of older people tend to be in that area. I lived with my grandparents for six years. Um, and it was great. Um, I didn't really know them before I moved there, um, but it was nice to be the millennial in the silent generation's house. <laughs> I, I learned a lot. That's great. I learned yeah. a lot about my family and about old Jamaica. That's Jamaica that hasn't been influenced by U.S. culture through cable. Oh, okay. Um, cable TV. Uh, and I learned about our family traditions and it helped me to understand, I think, some of the things that made our um, our family, our family's relationship to the Adventist Church um, so strong. Like for my grandfather in particular, uh, converting to the church when he was in his 20s um, gave him an opportunity to kind of escape the subsistence farmer uh, life. And so he he was able to, through the church, kind of educate himself um, he learned to read prolifically. He still reads every day. He's uh, 102 years old right now, and he still reads. Um, he doesn't speak anymore. He doesn't preach anymore. But um, this is a guy who basically read himself into what would have been uh, at least a college degree. Wow. Um, and to, to talk to him, you wouldn't know that he didn't finish high school. And, and that, that's part of the um, traditional Seventh-day Adventist culture that you you really study the scriptures, you study the writings of Ellen White and other church um, leaders, and you engage the text in a way that helps you to learn how to formulate arguments about it, um, primarily to justify the church's teachings on things. But there is at least that initial um, encouragement to engage texts and to, to study, as they say, to show yourself approved. And you mentioned that that... that joining the church was your grandfather's way to escape subsistence farming. Does the Adventist church provide educational tools? Yeah. Um, is that a big part of their tradition as well? Mm -hmm. It is. And as a matter of fact, it's in, internationally, it is the largest education system other than the, the Roman Catholic education system. So there are um, a number of academies, um, 
like elementary schools to middle school, several colleges around the United States and more cropping up um, around the world. Um, and so the one that I went to, the college that I went to is, is one of those. It's been open since, um, I think 1919 is their formal start date. So at least uh, almost a hundred years. Um, some of these schools have been in service and, you know, they started many of them to train, uh, train pastors, to train teachers and to train nurses. Wow. Yeah. And then from there, you know, through the, the late 20th century, then they branch out to the various other disciplines. Yeah. I also went to a, a Christian college and it actually has a similar found, founding date. I think it's 1920. Mm -hmm. um so so i know that um just historically that there tended to be a lot of christian colleges being founded around that time mm -hmm. um, both in reaction to some of the uh, the influence of modernism as well as some Absolutely. other some other things but um as far as what the school was like did it have similarities to some of the more conservative Christian colleges here, did they have a lot of restrictions in regards to these sorts of things that they allowed the student body to do? As an exam as some examples, like our our school restricted the the students from watching rated R movies, um, curfew for freshmen and sophomores, a strict dormitory visiting policy for uh, opposite genders, that sort of thing. Did um did your did the Adventist school have any of those sorts of cultural trappings as well? Oh yeah, yeah, it did, and um I I guess I escaped many of them because I did live with my grandparents, so I was off campus, so I never had the dorm experience, which I don't regret in the slightest. <laughs> <laughs> um, but at the same time, um, I was involved in uh, student government and stuff like that, so um fairly familiar with a lot of the restrictions. And yeah, so for the first at least year and a half to two years, women were not allowed to wear pants on campus. Uh, it was a skirts only zone um, unless you were actively engaged in sport. And then it was until you finish the sport, then you wear your shorts and then you're done back into appropriate garb for your gender. And um, that only changed when we became a university. So when I first went over, it was a college. And then it became chartered as a university in, in 1999. Um, but yeah, similar stru uh, strictures on dorm life, on, the, uh, on sexual relationships between students. Um, like traditionally, if you were married, then you didn't stay on campus at all, that you had an apartment else off campus. Um, I'm not sure if they thought that being married was contagious, but this is the kind of environment that, that we're talking about where um, through policies, people are trying to control behavior. And uh, not that it worked in the slightest, <laughs> but it did create an environment where um, you knew that there was a lot of things you couldn't do. And it was framed in such a way that it became a matter of pride not to do them because we were cut of different cloth and um, People were looking at the city set on a hill, and so there was a lot of concern around the appearance of righteousness. I think less concern about whether people internalized the ethics. And I think that's probably one of the easiest pitfalls for a, a traditional community to fall into where compliance is enough. As long as people appear to be fit in the, the box, then, then you don't need to 
really engage them beyond that because they appear to be in compliance with your rules. But um, I think the higher value for religion is that it, well, and any kind of philosophical system really, is that it, it transforms the way that you're thinking about and situating yourself in relation to the world so that you're not just in external compliance with something, but you figured out what the rationale is. And if the rationale is logical then and benefits you or the people around you, then, then you can internalize the rule and express it in appropriate ways, no matter whether your environment allows you to do something or not. Absolutely. Yeah. How did you, how did you kind of take those rules when you were an adolescent, when you were young? and attending this school did you find yourself in cl- in conflict with them at all um <clears throat> since you since you lived off campus you may not have uh, had to obey a number of the on campus sort of uh, rules outside of uh, the dress which i um i haven't heard something like that and I, I know that's that's pretty that's very conservative um <laughs> yeah <laughs> to say the least yeah and i mean um, and even today in some jamaican churches you're not allowed to wear sleeveless at least women are not allowed to wear sleeveless dresses they expect you to wear a cardigan people get very bent out of shape if you don't because for some reason a woman's bicep is a immodest thing to see and this is just like total legacy of colonial um, yeah. colonial propriety but, and uh, and people are not really thinking through the rule or what impact it has on people who just show up to worship or whatever and um, so yes yeah, so I, I think while I was in Jamaica I was very much a learning about the environment and kind of a curious a curious personality so I was just willing to throw myself into it as an adventure it was my choice to go. I wasn't sent or anything. I chose to go. I visited on vacation and um, went back home and told my parents, you know, I want to do this thing. And so I did. And um, so on the basis of really just inhabiting that adventure, I went in all the way. And at the same time, I grew up like a tomboy. And so um, this dresses all the time thing was, was pretty intense for me. Um, but I still did it. Um, I still complied with a lot of those rules, but I was beginning to figure out that I could question some things. And I did ask difficult questions about, um, why we had certain customs around baptism or, um, was there any logic to our customs about not wearing jewelry, which was at that time a really big thing. It's less so now, but it was a big thing then. Um, just just these external markers for being part of what they call the remnant people. Um, and did it have any biblical basis? Were the arguments we were using for it valid? Um, what impact did it have on real people? Those sorts of things. I was beginning to do that, but I, I hadn't changed anything about the way I actually lived. I was just beginning to think through, um, you know, what's the basis for these ideas and does it make any sense? And I think that's what a lot of college kids are, are doing um, when they go to school. It's not so much that they're trying to look for reasons not to do things. At least that wasn't my experience or observation of people. Um, it's just they want a safe place to question. And, and if we can't offer them that, then it's not really school. It's more an indoctrination center. I, yeah, I totally agree with, with that as, as far as being a, more of an indo- and more of an indoctrination. I, 
um, in retrospect, um, a, a number of students that I knew that were going through very intense questioning and, and criticism of their own beliefs, which I believe is what college is about. Um, mm. They very much uh, felt conflicted about how they felt or how they thought they might believe in, in a given moment. And when you're in this environment where you have uh, very clear rules about what you're supposed to do and what you're not supposed to do, um, that can be can become a very it can create a lot of cognitive dissonance um, mm -hmm. as you're trying to navigate finding your own beliefs, finding the foundation of your own beliefs, um, and yet feeling like it's not a safe space to do that. Um, and I know that that is it's making news about safe spaces and and triggers and everything. I think University of Chicago stepped in something about that recently uh, mm -hmm. within academia, but. Uh, just in the general use of that term, it being a place where you can um, can freely examine your own thoughts um, mm -hmm. without without fear um, of retribution or being reprimanded. Um, right. That's a, a absolutely essential thing, um, and it does just default to a more more of an indoctrination, and, and saw that play out at our at, at my school um, pretty clearly within some specific departments, um, the political science department and the religion department, um, mm -hmm. in particular, that being, that being said, um, did you, and throughout your academic career, did you, um, ex experience or take a, take a break? Did you experience something where you stopped engaging with the Adventist tradition or have you always kept this dialogue open as you continue to learn through college and, um, through your, uh, through your postgraduate work as well? So I, the, the space in my life where I think I did the most learning and growing was graduate school. When I moved again from Jamaica to West Texas, um, wasn't living with anybody this time. I uh, was a little, little bit older in my early 20s and was doing um, a master's and then a PhD. The local churches that I was involved with at the time were, um, there were two Adventist churches in town, just two. So again, to go from Adventism in the UK where it's not common, but it's everybody looks like me, and the churches are very um, vibrant and active. Then to move to Jamaica, where the church is much more socially dominant and politically dominant there, and then to come to West Texas, where there are only two churches in a town of like 200,000 people, hmm. was a culture shock, to say the least. And um, Yet I participated at both churches for about five years of my eight years stint in town. I think what happened was a combination of burnout from from being so engaged in congregational life and and um, and service, um, as well as simply reading the scriptures through again. Um, I'd grown up reading it in the context of Sabbath school classes and uh, reading it in the context of being a teacher, or um, once or twice I, I shared sermons in my local church, but um, just really taking the personal time to, to re-engage the scriptures on their own terms as far as I understood that at that time, uh, to study and to really make good use of the internet, which I didn't have growing up and um, 
wasn't really quite accessible while I was in Jamaica. But the beautiful thing about access to information these days is that you don't need to go through uh, an authority figure to get it. And um, if you've learned how to evaluate information and to evaluate sources, which God bless the humanities for teaching that sort of thing. Um, <laughs> yeah. It it enables you to to do that kind of exploratory research and to to seek answers to your own questions without depending on a single authority figure who may or may not have done the research themselves, but may be really attached to you coming to the same conclusion as they do. Um, so I I went through um, for the, probably the second time in my life, the first time when I was first baptized, uh, the second time in my life to just read through through the book that is at the center of the Christian faith. And um, so I did that. And in the process of reading it now as a young adult in a, in a new environment and learning more about myself, I realized that I varied on some issues with my denomination, um, at least in terms of the emphasis on apocalypticism. And um, I turned out I was not a conservative. And uh and and so what do I do with that when I'm in a very clearly traditional um, religious community and context? Uh, I I wasn't uh, an antagonist. I'm really not a, an arguer or fighter. I just think things and I enjoy thinking things. Um, so I had to, as I was reading and connecting with other people who had thoughts, it helped me to find forums where I could speak freely and not kind of disrupt a Sabbath school class, for example, to uh, talk with others who had thought those same questions and maybe learn from them which sources had been useful for them as they'd worked it out. Um, all these kinds of creating an almost uh, an alternate support system for myself outside of the conventional church uh, structure so that where I found the conventional church structure really resistant to questions, I found an alternate structure still within the Adventist community, but a, a, a system and group of people who were willing to ask questions and enjoyed um, really direct discussions. And uh, so that was around 2006, 7, 8, thereabouts. Um, yeah, and that, that was a period that really energized my personal experience of faith, but also at the same time um, helped me to separate my spiritual identity from the church structure that I'd grown up. I think there's just a thing that everybody goes through eventually where you, um, what's the word? individuate. So as a, a young adult in your home, you individuate yourself from your family, you kind of develop your own personality and way of looking at things, even if you still are connected to your family. And in the same way, I think it's just part of the process of spiritual development that you, you learn to recognize what your tradition offered you and where you vary from it and how you can um, how you can express that in your own context. And I think, yeah, I, I agree with the individuation. Um, I think it's very interesting. Uh, a number of the people that I've talked to as I've, as I've begun this project, uh, oftentimes have to, uh, 
essentially disengaged from the tradition that they came from. But um, but you found a way to continue to dialogue within your Adventist community. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I I I both um, I continued to participate for like I said about five of the eight years that I was in in West Texas. I stopped going about um, 2008 or nine, for maybe two years. And um, part of that was at the time the denomination was really, really struggling with how to how to deal how to deal with science. Um, the tradition is uh, it's a creationist religion, and uh, and that makes it hard for its scientists who recognize that there's more to the data than that conclusion. And um, as somebody who was in graduate education, it became pretty much infuriating that, you know, some people thousands of miles away who aren't looking at the materials you're looking at would say, you're not entitled to draw this logical conclusion from the text that you've taken years to study. It didn't, it didn't make any sense to me that that should be how we go about dealing with information or knowledge. Um, so that was one thing. Uh, another thing was at around the same period, um, the church was really struggling with its female ministers. And for the last 40 years, it's had multiple opportunities to make ordination a gender-neutral um, designation. So everybody who goes to seminary, men and women are entitled to go or allowed to go and take classes and graduate and become pastors and do the work of pastoring. And at some point in your career as a pastor, your community prays over you and recognizes that you've been called to do this um, vocation, but the denomination still to this day refuses to um, acknowledge the ordination of women pastors. And um, so that became uh, an issue that surfaced around the mid 2000s and um, is still, is still to our disgrace, um, a big issue today. And then a third issue that arose around that time was involved with um, the church's treatment of the LGBTQ community. I uh, I grew up in, in the UK during a time when nobody really talked about the LGBTQ people. And um, so I discovered very late that uh, I was bisexual and um, I discovered very late that um, there was a wider Adventist LGBTQ community out there in the misty ether. Um, and so not until my mid-20s did I connect with this community or find um, a space in which I could integrate both faith and sexuality. And, uh, but I, I guess I wasn't, I still and have never really looked to the denomination to validate my understanding of myself but at the same time, there are a lot of people who are still growing up in this environment and for whom um, whatever pronouncements are made from the senior levels of the church, they have a lot more weight than maybe healthy for people who are just coming out or figuring out who they are and what their life options are. And so um, just observing from, I guess, a safe distance um, psychologically, how my denomination was engaging the LGBTQ community, both within and beyond the church, um, 
the way that we would kind of basically abandon our approach to religious liberty when it came to this issue, but wanted the support of other minorities when it came to protecting our Sabbatarian rights in the workplace. Um, all, all these sorts of things just really woke me up, I suppose, and uh, encouraged me to really just pay attention to the way that we wield religion as a weapon against people sometimes, instead of allowing it to motivate us to be more neighborly and more respectful of people who are different. very active on you're very active on on twitter and uh, we we follow one another on on twitter mm-hmm. um and one of the things that i um places i first um learned about you uh was actually there as part of the discussions around um around a number of hashtags related mm. to lgbtq um relations within the church um i think the mm-hmm. the first one that that i became aware of uh, just through following following them and uh finding finding your writing uh through that was i believe probably ik ikdg stories and kiss shame by mm-hmm. um and then subsequently i i learned about um q faith and, and other mm-hmm. other related um hashtag communities and discussion forums that happen um uh, publicly on twitter um mm-hmm. i am i am cisgender and i'm hetero uh so mm-hmm. i don't participate in those but i i i observe them to try to to try to um, become more familiar with the sorts of issues that um, LGBTQ people of faith kind of ha- uh, have to have to face and have to um, have to wrestle with, um, and the way they find um, the way they um, have begun to navigate. I I, I know that. <laughs> Please um, forgive me if I'm if I'm not phrasing this properly. Um, no problem. Because I, uh, this is definitely an area. Um, where where I'm seeking just to to listen and and to learn um, mm-hmm. from from those who have the authority to to speak, which I mm-hmm. which I don't. I'm just here to listen and allow people to tell their stories. Um, mm-hmm. What what have those sorts of communities and those sorts of discussions um, added to to your own um, exploration of of that part of your life? Mm-hmm. So I I joined Twitter around 2011, I believe. And um, my brother got me on to the to the site, and it didn't it didn't really take long for me to find other people who are have a curious approach to religion and religions plural, not just their own or the ones that they grew up in, but are interested in learning more about religions in general and um, a responsible use of it in the public sphere. I didn't find. Um, didn't take long for me to find LGBTQ people in a number of traditions also. And Q Faith was, I think, it started in 2013 or thereabouts. Um, Shea Mace III and uh, Dee Glenn started it so that it was, from the very beginning, a multi-faith project, a queer and trans-centric project. 
I, idea behind it was to, to give people a space where LGBTQ people of faith, regardless of faith, could just come together and congregate. And, and also at the same time, it included uh, a few people who um, in the beginning were not from any of those communities, but um, were still supportive and wanted to discuss. And so, I mean, that met on Sunday evenings for every Sunday evening around six o'clock. It still meets most Sundays. Um, but for the first year and a half or two, there was a, a topical chat pretty much every week. And it was really vibrant. And um, some of the people that uh, participate in it, I now consider friends. I think that's the beauty of uh, a site like Twitter, where you're connecting with people not on the basis of familiarity like you do on Facebook. But there's a sort of a natural inclination to congregate around certain topics. And so you get to connect with people who are as, as engaged with as you are in learning about these things. Um, and it, it, it kind of reduces social isolation for a lot of people who, especially if you're an introvert by temperament and um, or uh, for whatever reason, whether you have physical disabilities or um, uh, like I do, um, an invisible uh, disability where you might have energy issues or whatever else um, that limits your ability to go out and be stereotypically social. The internet and chats like this allow you to still connect with your community and, and grow uh, and feel supported and be supported by, by other people. So I, I think that they serve a definite role in um, helping people to experience community in a non-traditional way. And so uh, the, the I kiss shame goodbye and um, other hashtags around engaging purity culture, those are much more recent. And um, I'm hopeful that they do continue. Um, but they're giving people a space, regardless of sexuality, to re-engage um, the teachings that many of us were taught around purity culture, um, to do some growing, to explain how we've grown um, and to kind of just stretch the boundaries of that conversation. And did that purity culture extend over to the other side of the Atlantic as it had such a, it, it did have such a, a prominence in the eighties, nineties and early two thousands here. Um, did it, was it similar over in, uh, in the UK and in Jamaica? Yeah. So um, again, because Adventism is pretty much a conservative tradition. So it did imbibe a lot of those messages around um, linking your moral value to your sexual practices, um, treating marriage as the part of gold at the end of the rainbow. Um, and I'm being kind of flippant here because it's late. <laughs> That's <okay. laughs> And my filter is reducing. Um, That's okay. <laughs> but yeah, so I mean, like there was a lot of that sort of um, assumptions about what your life would look like as an adult. And if it didn't look like that, then people often did treat you with um, pity, at least. Um, so just like many churches where the congregation is at least 60 to 70% female, um, and most of those are going to be heterosexual women looking for a man to partner with, but they aren't around. And then there are these disincentives for forming relationships with people who aren't part of your, your faith. So even if there were suitable partners for them, the church does not consider them suitable. So there's no support for you in building relationships that might actually give you the, 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 um, the relationships that you're looking for. Um, 
I didn't read uh, uh, I Kiss Dating Goodbye until I was in Jamaica and a relative passed on to me and she was very excited about it. And I was not excited about it at all, but um, <laughs> I did read it and uh, it didn't do anything for me. Um, I'm, I, I don't say that it that particular book is as... Um, like the conversation should never devolve to a single book or a single person because it's so much more complex than than any of that. And and almost in terms of focusing on a single book and a single person, your um, there's a, that inclination to divert attention from those larger systemic questions around how we how we read the scriptures, how we interpret um, people's lived experience. Uh, who we consider viable witnesses about what they experience, um, how we engage desire, um, all those sorts of larger questions that affect everybody and not just a few. Um, when we focus on a single person and a single book, as critical as they were for some communities, I think we're missing an opportunity to have those wider conversations. So um, I've tried my best not to um, be too hyper-focused. Um, because I think I benefit more when I'm asking the deeper questions and, and uh, engaging those. Um, but at the same time, um, if folks are acting up, then we're going to notice. Mm-hmm. So um, that that's kind of where some of those hashtags right. came from. Yeah, yeah, and it's that the two the books by Joshua Harris. You're you're correct. Uh, um, it's only a couple of pieces of a much larger puzzle. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, and by giving a single book that level of authority, it, it can be a double-edged sword for sure. Um, yeah, it provides a it, it provides a good yeah. starting place to begin a conversation about the larger cult, uh, culture of purity culture. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, I don't want to underemphasize any of the actual experiences that people have had because sure. I've, I've read I've read plenty of stories since summer from people who. Um, who whose childhood and youth was really shaped by their community's responses to that book and to the yeah. ideas in that book and and the wider culture around it that discouraged dating and encouraged courtship and and all mm-hmm. of the entailments that that went along with that. Um, those, those are real real stories and, and oh, real experiences, and um, I I'm not in any way trying to be dismissive of that. Oh, I totally understood. Um. Mm-hmm. So on your on your site, you uh, you mentioned that you like to engage in talking about the three taboos, um, yeah. which are uh, politics, religion, and sexuality. We've gotten to an, a, a couple of those so far, um, but uh, the the one that kind of remains here is um, is politics. And uh, you have given a couple of recent talks, uh, one of them being about atonement and nonviolence. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'd, I'd love to hear you speak uh, to a little bit about that. Um, it is certainly very timely as things like uh, Twitter and other live streaming sorts of services have made the sorts of social injustices about systemic racism and other um, travesties and just horrific realities that um, people of color have to face within within the overall society. Um, n- numerous accounts of police brutality again being on twitter and and seeing and following a number of people that that talk about that talk about these matters um very frankly and very openly 
openly grieving, openly discussing the things that are uh, affecting these communities. Um, that's another thing that uh, that makes that a very powerful social tool. What do you see as a as a good uh, response, um, either within the lens, through the lens of either your political or religious understanding to um, to this sort of these social these large systemic social problems so the the talk that i gave a few weeks ago on nonviolence and atonement was given to an adventist audience um that by and large was to the left of traditional atonement theology um the headliner uh, has a, a long-standing critique of substitutionary atonement theories and promoted the Christus Victor atonement model. So the substitutionary atonement for folks following along at home would be the one where uh, God kills Jesus in your place. Um, and that's a very crude way of saying it, but that's basically how the models stack up. Um, and in the Christus Victor model, um, rather than it being about uh, God taking out his wrath on Jesus instead of taking it out on you, there's this kind of meta story around good and evil and the ways, the creative ways that God um, tries to subvert evil's expression through death or through um, through violence. And so we spent like maybe two and a half days um, trying to unpack what, what does that actually imply for the world that people actually live in? And so one of my challenges to the speaker and to people who consider themselves progressive Christians was, okay, so you consider yourself a proponent of nonviolence. That's awesome. What do you do with um, some of these images in our text that are very, very violent? And um, what do you do with the fact that the metaphors that we use uh, are cognitive shapers they're not just flat metaphors they're not flat language but they help to shape the way that we perceive and the way that we um, situate ourselves in relation to ourselves and in relation to the world around us and to other people so when you have violent images in the text um, whether that's in terms of genocide or it's in terms of the language that you use to describe women or it's even in the vision where a whole bunch of people get wiped out to kind of resolve everything at the end of Revelation. These sorts of images have a corrosive effect on our ability to perceive suffering in the here and now and um, take responsibility for ending it. And so one of the examples that I, I raised was the fact that my church, the Adventist church, um, formed in the mid-1800s during a time when there were so, so many U.S. government massacres of Native American people, and our church uh, really said nothing about that. And it's striking to me that a church that is so committed to um, medical healing, for example, and um, education, and has a fundamental belief about the equality of human beings, would yet coexist with um, actual genocide, like literal actual genocide, and not say anything. And then that sort of um, passivity with regard to people's suffering uh, 
um, shows up again in the 19th century, in the 20th century, and in our time today, whether it's in terms of Rwanda, where church members were involved in the genocide there, um, or it's just in terms of here we are again, where Native American people are protesting, and validly so, against um, oil pipelines being built on their land without their consent and without consideration of their environmental impacts on their communities. And our church is not exercised about that. It's not energized about that. And so what, it, what is it about our vision of what it takes to make the world right? What it is about that vision that inures us to suffering that's happening in our time and makes us okay with things being bad for some other group of people? Just in case, you know, in tomorrow, the sweet by and by, we get it to be made right for the chosen few. Like, how can we be so willing to sacrifice the well-being of other people and still hold as good this vision of restoration and, and atonement? Um, that doesn't really make sense to me. And, and so I just wanted to hold that challenge before the group and say, you know, when we're talking about restoring all things and putting the world right, we have to make sense of the suffering of people and our responsibilities to those people. Because I think that is a, it's a political question in the sense of we get to apportion our attention and we get to apportion our resources to resolve questions that matter. And if our doctrines don't encourage us to do that, but instead encourage us to stay focused on our own um, intra-community disputes and debates, and we never get mobilized to act on the world around us, I think there's something wrong with that. So I'm, 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 I don't think I've ever been a kind of um, personal piety kind of believer. I, I, I don't see the point in that. And I think that there's a lot in the Adventist tradition and in Christianity more broadly that encourages a much more active participation in the world. And speaking to those violent metaphors, um, where do you look for alternate metaphors or which ones would you, would, would you recommend are, are more appropriate to, uh, to emphasize? Mm -hmm. So it's really interesting that um, the Bible can be so ambivalent a source. So there are things that are just really monstrous about the text and <laughs> yes um and there are also things that i find quite beautiful about the text so even in that same book revelation where there's plagues and woman is um both the virgin mother and the great whore of babylon um at the same time i'm i'm really motivated by a vision of the new earth where there's not separation and there is provision for all people and um it it bugs the heck out of me that um it seems that john can't imagine getting there without a lake of fire and he can't seem to imagine getting there without war and a conquering um savior and uh, that's frustrating to me because i think it betrays a lack of imagination um and so i I want to motivate people to to imagine a world where we're not struggling for resources, because I think that it's possible. Um, a, a world where we don't have this kind of intra-human um, competition over power and authority. I don't think that's necessary. Thinking about a, a world where 
our, our words and our actions are healing and not destructive. Um, those are the sorts of images that I, I find uh, engaging around um, from the scriptures, uh, from the teachings of Jesus uh, in the Gospels, um, some of the some of the writings of Paul, not all of them certainly, but um, and some of the the visions in in Revelation. And I think this ability to 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 recognize the ambivalence in those voices. Um, it's just something that people of color have always had to do and, and women have always had to do in relation to the text. So um, I'm not really breaking any new ground there in, in recognizing that there are some images that actually do seem to produce good fruit and other images that don't. Can you unpack what you just said about um, women and people of color? Um having to engage the text in a different way than white men or because mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, it, because mm-hmm. I think there's, I think there's something to that. I think, and certainly, certainly the people that have been in power, largely mm-hmm. white men in Western civilization for hundreds of years mm-hmm. have always been selective. And I'm, I'm also speaking as, as I'm aware as a white man, and I'm saying mm-hmm. this, um, there's always been a selectiveness when it comes to what's being applied from mm-hmm. uh, from the from the biblical text. Yeah. Can you um can you speak to the experience um experience of women and people of color and how they have had to be selective as well in applying it to their lives and understanding the world? Yeah. So where I'll start is with um, James Cone's "The Cross and the Lynching Tree." The lynching tree. The cross and the lynching tree. Um, is a really compact uh, little book. The first section, um, Cone highlights the ways that uh, traditional white theology um, kind of developed tunnel vision around the teachings of Jesus or the person of Jesus, but wasn't able to perceive Jesus in the lives of black people in the Americas. And uh, so he talks a little bit about um, some of the theological arguments that the white church tended to make as far as um, encouraging slavery or being passive around abolition. Um, He also quotes from black preachers in the 1800s and 1900s, people who saw the social um, oppression and um, really had difficulty reconciling that with uh, the message of Christianity. So he talks about that quite a bit in his book. Um, Kelly Brown Douglas in Sexuality in the Black Church um, also engages some of the texts that have historically been used or weaponized against black people and black women in particular and social theories around whether um, black women are um, hypersexual or um, are eligible eligible to be considered women even um, and treated in the same way as white women. So she, talk, she talks about that in her materials. And so um, womanist theology more broadly um, challenges the ways that Christian theology, both around atonement specifically and in general, has tended to lionize suffering. And that lionizing of suffering has meant that um, people going through social oppression aren't taught to value themselves such that they resist oppression, but they're taught to 
um, treat their oppression as imitation of Jesus who suffered in silence and so on, all, all the way to the cross. And so there's this sense in which religion has been used to justify both people's mistreatment and to discourage their um, challenge of that mistreatment. Um, so I'm kind of going in broad strokes there, but womenist theology has, has had this critique for a good 25 years plus. Um, same with that feminist theology and, uh, and black liberation theology. So th those would be three sources. If somebody wanted to engage any of that, then, then those would be three sources that I would send them to. Great. Um, thank you. Uh, in an effort to to try to encapsulate uh, the the number of different threads that that we've gone gone down um, through our discussion here, um, you mentioned in that in your in your uh, challenge to the presenter at at the conference you attended uh, uh, around atonement and nonviolence uh, that you wanted to kind of push back a little bit on. Um, on the sorts of assumptions that some progressive Christians have. Mm -hmm. um, and you, you also have a history with a, uh, and you come from a conservative denomination, mm -hmm. um, but you have expressed a, that it is very good for Christians to be engaged in, for lack of a better term, the, the political sphere, mm -hmm. uh, putting their faith into action. What do you think would be the most, would be the most appropriate way or, ways in which um, all members of, of different denominations might engage in these issues of more systemic problems or underlying social, social issues in, in a way that would be appropriate for the church to express that, um, not, not, not an apocalyptic vision, but mm -hmm. a more hopeful and redemptive vision for the world and, um, and their place within it. Mm -hmm. That's not an easy question to answer um, for a number of reasons. I think that Christianity um, and Christians, regardless of tradition, need to come to some sort of understanding of and peace with the fact that we live here on this planet. And um, by all biological measures, we were made for this planet. And so... so in some ways, um, theologies that define us as alien to this planet and with our rightful home somewhere else in some other realm um, are fundamentally unhelpful. So uh, there's a strand of Christianity contemporarily that says, you know, we are citizens of heaven and, and not citizens of wherever we happen to be citizens of. As, a, as somebody who is actually a, a dual citizen and living in a third country, um, I don't really care for that citizenship metaphor. Due respect to mm -hmm. Paul, who came up with it. I think that it inures us to the idea that we actually are full participants and responsible for the development of human culture. And uh, um, there's no passivity that is actually helpful when we say we belong somewhere else because it means that we are both benefiting from and contributing contributing to the morass of and the mix of positive and negative that is right here 
So I think first figuring out that you are an earthling and you live here and you're responsible for what happens here, I think that's a fundamental piece to how do we then engage culture. Um, and then secondarily, I think that uh, we, it's worth distinguishing between what, say, congregations or denominations do as um, 501c3 organizations in the U.S., because there are appropriate strictures on what religious organizations can or can not do in relation to formal politics um, or electoral politics, I should be specific. Um, and then at the same time, I'm a real fan of Benjamin Barber's Strong Democracy. Um, he writes a lot about ways that a strong democracy is one where um, people are invited to fully participate, that there's not like this autocratic center that just seeks people's compliance with opinions in order to minimize the range of ways that people can get involved. But in a strong democracy, there's like this intentional commitment to um, open and transparent communication, like a, the development of a common um, a common space where people engage the issues with as much information as possible and, and can develop as many ways to participate as possible. So it's not just that we're talking about voting. It's not just that we're talking about local government, but that there are a myriad of ways for somebody to stay engaged with community life. And I think that it's important for Christians to be participants in community life if, as I say, we are of this world and we are born here and we are made for it and therefore we have some responsibilities. So when, when I look at uh, a local church, um, and I've been involved with a couple of them, not just within Adventism, but elsewhere as well, um, I'm looking at a congregation to be a space where people can um, be encouraged to take their doctrines and ethics, their spiritual ethics, and apply them in the real world, whether that is through service to whatever the community might need, um, not from uh, we have some kind of missionary authority over the unwashed masses, but in terms of, again, that, that sense that we're part of this community, so we have a responsibility to help um, uh, nurture it, nourish it, and, and improve on it. Um, so I'm looking for that kind of community responsibility and engagement opportunities to engage. I'm not so much looking for um, local congregations to be spaces where um, people are encouraged or discouraged from taking specific uh, voting positions. Um, I, I had the misfortune of, of sitting through a forum at a, an Adventist church in the Maryland metro. Uh, where they had the National Organization on Marriage and um, Denominational Religious Liberty, uh, Family Ministry, um, and theologians um, just really manipulating the space such that there was no right answer other than do not vote for civil same-sex marriage. And... Hmm. and uh, I just I really worried about the quality of conversation in not just in that congregation, which willingly hosted this forum, but in the denomination writ large, where how can you um, 
I, it just did not feel like an appropriate use of religious authority to me. Um, that so close to an election, they were willing to use their scholarly credibility this way um, to bring in a non-Adventist to basically um, turn the electoral conversation into a referendum on whether Obama was black enough. You know, all sorts of foolishness happened that day. Um, (laughs) And and, uh, so, yeah, I... I, I'm not looking for that kind of engagement because we've had enough of that through Christian dominionism over the last 20 years. We've really had enough of that. <laughs> yes, absolutely. But I think that um, just the sense that we are participants and responsible, I think, could shift us in a different direction. Not that we're engaging so that we precipitate the end and can escape. I think that leads us to kind of this almost this willingness to produce the apocalypse and 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 the kind of um to be all too comfortable with that kind of brinkmanship mm-hmm. um so yeah i i'm i'm looking for a more the kind of responsibility that you have when you know you have to live with what you what you messed up yeah 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 um uh, there's a famous essay by I believe the author is Lynn White called the roots of our ecological crisis um, mm. And its uh, its thesis is essentially that uh, in the during the Industrial Revolution there were two things that happened that essentially precipitated the ecological crisis of then twentieth century and beyond, which was that um, science and technology, um, which previously were um, were were separated and mm-hmm. there was some distance between them, um, joined essentially in a in a way joined forces so to speak and mm-hmm. then also um there was also the the commerce and profit incentive that tied into that mm-hmm. and it also fed off of the fact that there was at the time a popular conception um within Christianity that the world is essentially disposable um mm-hmm. and those two factors led to some practices that we still haven't been able to shake 150 years later um right so and one of my one of my favorites um personally uh there's a great uh nt right essay <clears throat> pardon me nt right essay called jesus is coming plant a tree so um <laughs> so that, i like that yeah it's very good which essentially espouses that um and he does take an argument from um a portion from revelation where Essentially, the the new heaven and new earth are created out of this earth, mm-hmm. and that's what um, it's not ex nihilo; it's ex federate out of the old. Um, yeah. So, so that the work of redemption that was beginning, and looking back at another uh, biblical text in Romans that that the creation is groaning, um, all those sorts of things, and then the that the new creation began with the resurrection of Jesus. Um, all those different things can connect Christianity to a more hopeful um, vision of the future that that is rooted in this world. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think that's a very powerful sort of, uh, sort of vision. And I, I I appreciate what what you said as well uh, in relation to that. Um, Thank you. I I, I like that thought. I'm going to look it up. (laughs) Yeah. It's um, uh, that N.T. Wright essay was published and the there was uh, at least for a short time, 
there was a copy of something called the the Green Bible published instead yes. of um uh, and it's took the NRSV um version of the Bible and instead of having red letters it was green letters and it um, mm-hmm. basically colored within the text anything that could be applicable to a sort of stewardship or uh creation care i don't know whether that um term is still in vogue or not um, it is <laughs> that was is. What, um what my master's thesis was around okay. um, was creation care but um okay we should talk about that next time yeah absolutely um so uh, I, I do want to thank you very much for for joining me this evening and uh, and talking across a, a wide array of topics. Um, I appreciate you doing that. Where can people find you online? Where can they find your writing and and um, where they can they find you on Twitter or any other anything else you'd like to uh, plug? Yeah, so um, I am accessible on Twitter at Mackenzian M A C K E N Z I A N. And that's just an easy way to spell my, pronounce my name, I should say. Um, <laughs> my, my surname is, doesn't have an A in it at all, but I, I did it that way so people found it easier to pronounce. Um, and same with my website, Mackenzian.com. Um, one of the projects that I'm most proud of from the last year um, was mostly to do with the LGBTQ Christian conversation and the way that we talk with each other and about each other in the local uh, congregational context. So there's a dialogue film that I'm a part of called Enough Room at the Table. And folks can watch that at enoughroomfilm.com. Pay what you're able to afford, minimum of 99 cents. And uh, uh, so that's one of the the projects that I'm still willing to, to plug. But otherwise, come hit me up on Twitter. <laughs> Great. All right. Dr. McKenzie, thank you very much for joining me this evening. Appreciate it. Thank you for your time.